new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. It's a beautiful day here in the winter months, and <laughs> we are here doing uh, what we love to do, which is a podcast and interviewing some pretty cool people and talking about the topics of grief, loss, and dreams you have after your loved ones pass away. Uh, Joshua, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Sean. Thanks for uh, having us back on the podcast. It's always great doing it with you. And having these meaningful conversations. We had a little bit of a break there because we recorded a bunch, but now it's good to get back to this and interview someone new. Absolutely. On today's podcast, we have with us Dr. Sarah Neustadter, and she is a licensed psychologist based in Los Angeles, specializing in suicide prevention, loss, and grief, including those grieving the suicide of a loved one. She has had over a decade of professional experience identifying and treating those at risk of suicide, especially teenagers. Sarah is passionate about helping others understand grief as an entryway into a deeper process of spiritual growth. I like that. She holds a bachelor's degree from New York University's Gallatin School for Individualized Study and a PhD in clinical and transpersonal psychology from the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto, California. She is the author of the Love You Like the Sky, Surviving the Suicide of a Beloved. You can learn more about Sarah here, uh, www.sarahnewstadter.com. Uh, I'll give you the spelling, N-E-U-S-T-A-D-T-E-R for last name. And you can also follow her on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to have guests on that we we haven't formally met and, and chatted to. So I'm actually really excited to hear about your journey on how you came to get into this. Uh, a lot of people would say um, a field that's filled with a lot of deep suffering. But it seems like you found a way to maintain the balance within your life to be able to help those in need that, you know, a lot of people may not know how to help. So I'm really excited to talk about suicide prevention. I'm curious, you know, to start this off is what made you want to get a PhD? Because when I look back, I think I'm half crazy that I want to do it. <laughs> and so what was it always a dream of yours to get the PhD? Or no? Well, it's a good question. I know. Are we half crazy? No, it wasn't always a dream. In fact, I didn't really know what I wanted to study or what kind of career I wanted to have when I was in undergrad. And through sort of my trial and error and trying to figure out what I was good at or what, you know, what would be a meaningful career for me, I found a spiritual teacher actually while I was traveling and living in Tel Aviv at the time in Israel. And this woman was doing really beautiful, intuitively guided, sort of more spiritually based sessions with me. And I was very inspired by her to work with people one-on-one -on -one in that particular way. But I also wanted to have more of a psych credential and background to sort of balance the spiritual and the more traditional psychology. And then I, I've always been fascinated by people and um, really trying to understand what makes them tick or what makes us tick and how to grow and evolve as humans. So the combo of the two and, um, and suicide was not really on my radar to study or focus on specifically it, this, the topic of suicide 
seemed to grab me rather than me pursue it. And um, it was through a series of different um, life events and the death of my boyfriend, the suicide of my boyfriend in graduate school. And um, so it felt like a calling and, um, and one that I, it's something I've thought about, like just philosophically and existentially since a very young age. Um, so it sort of all came together in graduate school for better or for worse. Wow. I didn't know the loss actually happened while you're in your studies. How, how did you manage to finish your studies? That's a good question. Yeah. So my, um, graduate school boyfriend who was in my cohort at, at my psychology program, um, took his life in, uh, I would say our third year, it was a five-year program. And I was so distraught and devastated. And I basically told myself that, you know, his, his death had to like, it couldn't, my whole experience at graduate school and his death couldn't all be for nothing. Like I refused to not finish the PhD program and have his, this loss all happen together. So I was like, I'll be damned if I don't get this PhD. And so it was actually a really great outlet for me to focus mentally, especially the writing of my dissertation and then, you know, seeing clients for practicums and internships. It was a nice way for me to not be thinking about my own pain and to really learn how to be present with others, even while I was going through my own, you know, devastation and grief. It was actually like almost like a double PhD happening at the same time. But I was really determined to to graduate, and I actually was able to do that. Like, I think I finished my dissertation first in my class. So it really mo- actually motivated me in a, in a bittersweet way. And I always have to ask this when people say they wrote the dissertation. What was it on? <laughs> it was on a light topic. It was about spiritual factors that influence people's decision like how they know that their partner is the right one to marry so i wanted to understand how people know like that the person is right for them and so in doing so i explored these x factors these like bizarre stories or situations that happened while people were courting one another that lent them that knowing um and then i analyzed the results and I picked that topic because I was go- grieving so hard. And originally, I wanted to study spiritual motivations for suicide attempts. But since my boyfriend had taken his life, it was just there was no way I was going to write my dissertation on suicide. So I I picked a really light-hearted topic. Yeah, that's a uh, it's a lot different from the first one you would have done, and probably would have been very triggering too, as you're saying, to even try to complete that. How um how did the school re- respond? to the death of a student in your cohort? You know, the, I went to the school straight from the hospital after he, my ex-boyfriend had passed. And they were initially very supportive to me and really tried to be there for me. And the community at large came out and we had a memorial. We had like an Irish wake for my ex-boyfriend. Um, so they were pretty supportive. They also held an impromptu sort of grief counseling group for anybody that felt like they needed extra support. They offered hands-on counseling for anybody that felt like they, they needed that. 
so initially it was great. And then I, I don't know if you're familiar, but like as time goes by, you know, people kind of get on with their lives and go about their, you know, their merry way. And so after, after a short amount of time, that support kind of fell away. But initially it was pretty, pretty supportive. That's good to hear because it, it can be a daunting task, especially when you're in school, to continue on. I know a lot of schools don't really have a protocol how to deal with even just death in general, um, but suicide loss is just even more can be even more traumatizing uh, than some others. So now that you're done your your PhD, did you what was your next step? Did, like, what did you know? Did you get an office? Did you like try to start the business? Did you want to write the book? So, what was the next step after completing the PhD? Well, I moved to Los Angeles about a year after my ex's suicide. I was living in, we were living in Palo Alto. And so I moved down to LA to do my pre and postdoc internships here. And while I was, so I was simultaneously writing my dissertation and starting to write my book because the writing process was a really good cathartic outlet for me to just put everything I needed to say or every like layer of emotion out on the page. So the book started pretty immediately once I moved to LA. And and then you have to do your thousands of hours of internship training and then you've got to get licensed. So it was a it was a process of, you know, that takes many years and and then once I was licensed, I had already started a private practice and then I was also working in a group practice um, in downtown LA. And um, so that's kind of how I just sort of followed the steps. And then it took me nine years to complete my book. So I wrote pretty intensely for the first three years after my ex's death. And then I took a break. And then about two years ago, I returned to the manuscript to just complete it and get it out there because well, there's so many more suicides happening these days, and I felt like it was really important for me to finalize like my grieving process and my healing process and share that with other suicide survivors. That's it's so interesting. Nine years. Is it my biggest fear? Well, I don't know if it's fear. <laughs> is when you put something down that you've written, even for like I've done with publications, let it sit for two months and you come back to it. All of a sudden, you're rewording everything. You're redoing the format. Did that ever happen when you came back the second time? Oh, yeah. Book, that you're like, oh, I got to redo this, or this needs to be changed. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah I sat down and reread and changed the title and changed the, you know, the structure of the book and edited it out so much and added more over the years that, yeah, it was almost unrecognizable sometimes like what I had originally written in and what I completed with it's definitely a process and the interesting thing about surviving a suicide or grieving I think a traumatic death of any kind is that you grow so much from the experience so um, I had an editor tell me um, in the early years of my writing of the book that she thought that the book would be a lot stronger and fuller um, once I had of aged and matured a bit more and could look back in hindsight and then share from that vantage point about my loss instead of really kind of just sharing it from the immediate space of grief. And in the beginning, I didn't quite 
agree with her or want to agree with her. But then as nine years went by and I came back to the manuscript having fully healed, it was definitely, I, I felt I had a lot more wisdom to share. So it was a growth process and I was able to kind of write um, over the years and, and there are bits and paragraphs and chapters that reflect certain stages of who I was um, during that nine year period. One thing I, I, I loved about your bio is that statement of helping people understand grief as an entryway into a deeper process of spiritual growth. And I felt that doing the podcast, and I'm sure Joshua has as well, you know, it's one thing when we first started doing it, people would make comments like, oh, you know, oh you're doing a podcast on grief. It's not going to be kind of dark and kind of like heavy. And, and people were concerned, especially family members of like us entering into this field and how it's going to impact us. And personally, I felt that it's added so much to my life and really made me focus in on kind of the, what the important things of life are and really help develop that spiritual growth as you as you did. What, what has it done for you and your spiritual growth? Yeah, I know that's a great, great question and observation. I think for people that really let themselves feel the pain and the loss of grief, it's so unbearable that there has to be a way through it um, and a way to transform it. It's just a question of like, how deep do you want to go into it? And then how do you get yourself out? And I didn't know the answers to any of that at the time. And I couldn't find any books that were specific to suicide survivor loss, especially of like a partner. And so I kind of had to figure it out on my own. And I, what I realized was um, there was something incredibly sacred about the experience of being in so much darkness and so much pain and so much sadness that didn't feel like it would ever end. And my like darkest moments were also the most private and the most sacred. I don't think I could have grieved that deeply if I were with someone else. And I had to learn how to sit with my own pain and be with it. And uh, it was a lot of pain and um, kind of be in it by myself. It's, grief can be very lonely, very dislocating, especially like suicide because it's not, it's traumatic and it's not the norm and we don't really understand it. And it's so terrifying. So it revealed being in that place where it was just, I felt like I was in hell for three years. I had to tap in and access parts of me that I didn't really know I had. I had, And then to get myself out, I tried everything because, you know, we're therapists. So I'm open to modalities. I'll try anything to help get me out of my own pain. And so I worked with different psychologists and different spiritual teachers and you know so many practices and eventually as time went by um, I got a little healing from here and then a little bit of a shift in perspective there and support and you know I found my way um, but it was definitely a process and I think it's important to look at it as an opening into some form of transformation because who you are when you go through the loss initially is going to be drastically different than who you are when you come out of the grief. And so I think it's an important reminder because some people can just get stuck in the grief and not get out of it. 
of or not fully process all of it and then it rears its ugly head later in life in unexpected and painful ways. Yeah, that's that's I mean it's wonderful to hear. That's it's exactly how I, I think about it in terms of it's it's a dark journey almost and and just having understanding yourself and 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 maybe reawakening some of those tools that maybe lie dormant when you're not grieving you're happy and everything's fine but here comes this you know tidal wave of emotion and and everything that that's kind of making you feel like it's overwhelming but you know humans are amazing people and we find these ways to kind of cope and then eventually you know manage and thrive in these environments and and the grief process seems to be like that. It seems to be one of those journeys um, that's difficult and, and hard to kind of express. But um, I'm, it's very interesting, and I'm glad that you were talking about that. That there's there's moments in there in in the darkness that you kind of feel um, something k- kicking in in you that that's needed almost. It's hard to describe, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's once you're in it and, you know, hopefully, you know, people never have to experience something this traumatic. But when you're in it, like, it's really, it is really hard to describe. It's really scary. It's really lonely. And to your earlier point, there was something enriching about having these kinds of conversations about it. Because, like, when you're in grief, it's almost like you're on... You're in an abyss. You're at the the edge of life. You're sort of looking at death's door. And as you face that, there's something really enriching and powerful that you come to learn about life itself. And you can only get that when you're really looking at death in a certain way. Yeah, and also have have a different reverence, almost respect and, and awareness of people who've been through that as well. Like, it's like people who've gone through, like, a physical battle. This is like the psychological battle people go through. And then when you get out of it or, or seem like you're getting out of it, it's like you want to connect with people or, or you like hearing, like talking to people who've gone through that as well. Because you have that respect and reverence for them. They're like, yeah, oh, I know, I know exactly what you've been through. And it's kind of like that with the podcast and talking to different individuals and hearing their stories. And you have a connection with people. Um, who've experienced loss that maybe not the same as my loss but it's we're all connected in that there was loss but yeah there's a there's definitely a a, a, it's like they've they're wearing the same club but i'm pretty curious about you said something about the the deep suffering you had three years of deep suffering and you're trying different things i'm really curious about what were some specific issues that you had to face that I wouldn't expect that you were facing. Well, first off, I was suicidal myself and I wasn't expecting that. So, and what I've learned over the years is that if um, somebody takes their own life, the people who are left behind are at high risk for their own suicide. And so when my ex-boyfriend died, I just wanted to die too. And I had absolutely no will to live. So, Figuring out or getting to a place where I had the will to live again was hard because I felt like I was trapped in my body. All I wanted to do was die, um, but I knew that I couldn't because 
of how much pain it would cause my family and friends because it's such an unbearable kind of pain to survive a suicide. So I just felt trapped and I didn't know what to do. All I, I really just wanted to get out of my life. And so that was an unexpected thing that I had to navigate. And that took a lot of work and a lot of time and um, a lot of faith. So, and then coming to like find the meaning for why I was experiencing something like this, that was another thing that I grappled with. Like, and that was really important in my healing and my grieving is like, how can I make some meaning out of this loss? Like, what's the purpose for this? And so that became like a narrative that I that I adopted in my in helping me grow as a person and also as a psychologist is like, okay, I've got to be able to use this experience to help others who are going through something. So like that was really like the biggest meaning that I latched onto during that time was like this was happening so that I could help other people who were gonna go through that. And I feel like that's also a common thing that I hear a lot when people survive the tragedy. Um, they want to be able to share and teach other people how to navigate through that similar tra- tragedy. Yeah, finding meaning is, it does something to you in a sense of reawakens the joy almost within you, like that spirit, that fight for life. And it's interesting, like when the way you were talking, how it was guilt that saved you, right? Like, because you would have had so much guilt if you would have took your own life. So even though like... It's interesting how people say, you know, guilt's bad or whatever, but no, like it actually saved you. It's very interesting how you must have been able to release it and then use something else as a motivation for life. And I kind of, I really like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I don't have any problem <laughs> um, now that I'm on the other side of this, actually. And I wouldn't call it guilt. I just see it as objective fact. So like when I write about how, you know, for people who are contemplating suicide, when I either write about it or I tell them directly, like, your death will cause innumerable suffering for those that love you for generations to come. And that's just a fact. So, uh, I mean, and I think it's important because for a lot of reasons, but Causing that kind of pain is not what I think a person who is suffering really wants to do, but yet they don't really understand how deeply their death will affect others. And so I I do like to call people out on that, and I do like to speak to that. And I'm not, I know it may not make me seem like warm and fuzzy, um, but having lived through the suicide of somebody I love, I know how how life-changing and how traumatic and how devastating it is. And I would never wish that upon anybody else. So it was actually more of like a moral, a moral concern for me than I would say my own guilt. It was like, there's no way that I could ever do this to anybody. Like that was my, that was my moral ground. That's interesting. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So yeah, it's interesting talking about this stuff with, with you and i'm curious you one of your aspects of what you do is suicide prevention and since you've been through the gamut of of that yourself and you help others what is it some things that can help people uh, i guess find meaning in their life or, or find hope to live yeah that's a loaded question i'm sure uh you are familiar with helping people with that um it can be tricky but one of my favorite quotes about suicide is 
by an author, um, Stephen Levine, and he says that what people are really, when people are feeling suicidal, what they're most longing for is not to end their life, but so that their life is full and they're not in their pain. So I like to, I like to talk with clients about how can we make your life full when it feels empty? And it, that can be, you know, just getting to some basic stuff can also be challenging and that's where the work lies. But really helping people find some sense of purpose to their life and who they are. And it doesn't even have to be purpose in like a grand sense, like, oh, I'm going to save the world or I'm going to start this company or I'm going to, you know, do something significant with my career. It could be something as simple as like my purpose is just to enjoy my myself or enjoy my life or to feel loved. And then we help kind of work work backwards, like how can we get them to that thing that they're wanting? And that takes a lot of creativity, and I think that's where sort of the art of therapy comes in, and it's different for each client. You talked about different ways, different motivations, and, and you know, using your uh, boyfriend's suicide to kind of feel you, to kind of find meaning in it, and, and that helped you move forward. What were some other things that helped you as a source? What what were some of those things? I, and I, specifically spiritual, personal spirituality. Well, I worked with two therapists at the time. One was um, a Jungian analyst who helped me analyze my, not analyze, but um, learn about my dreams because my dreams were very vivid at the time after he had passed. And then the, another one was a woman, a therapist who really was more like holding my grief. So I would go into her office and just cry. And then I started working with a female shaman in San Francisco. And she and I did a lot of uh, readings and, you know, attempting to communicate with spirit and my ex-boyfriend on the other side. And then she prescribed me a bunch of rituals to do like daily offerings in meditation. I started meditating um, every day, almost twice a day. And that practice of sitting was really helpful because I would usually be flooded with tears and insights. And it was a powerful time, those sitting, uh, the sitting practices. But during my morning meditation time, I would also make offerings or do whatever that shaman had recommended according to her particular shamanistic tradition of Burkina Faso. And I don't know that I fully kind of believed or ascribed to that tradition, but it was helpful to have something tangible to do, some sort of ritual like bring flowers to the ocean or write a letter to him or gather his favorite foods and kind of take a picnic at the beach and read the letter that I wrote out loud and then kind of send it off into the ocean. Things like that were helpful to me and helped me to deepen my relationship with some sort of higher power. So I needed to really have some faith and strengthen my faith and my trust that something was happening beyond what I knew and that like it was all going to be okay eventually. And also to trust that my ex-boyfriend wasn't completely dead. So changing my views on life after death was really comforting. And so I would keep building as a, like almost like a new neural pathway like that. 
the belief that he was still alive in some other form. And then I would look for signs and synchronicities or things that would confirm that. And so that, I mean, I still do that. I think that's very helpful. And my my personal belief is that these external forces, whatever you want to call it, it can be helpful in helping you kind of lean on something during those times, during those deepest, darkest times, it can help you and, and to lean into something like that and, and whatever it is for you, you know, and, and again, people, I don't necessarily believe that you have to be fully committed to all aspects of whatever, whether it's an established religion or whether it's a new age uh, spirituality or whatever it is, whatever you want to call, um, I guess, God or the higher power. But I, I I do personally believe that there are some helpful elements there to kind of, you know, because sometimes you're at your, your end, you, you've exhausted your own resources, you've exhausted your energies, and, and it's it's difficult summoning that type of, you know, will, courage, motivation uh, to kind of move forward each and every day. And I think there's a reason some of these have lasted this long is that even in the rituals, the processes, there's something beautiful about a ritual, about a process, about a you know funeral ritual, about a remembering someone, you know, seeing butterflies around you and, and imagining that, that oh, well that that's that person. There's something beautiful there and some magic there that, that I can't quite put a finger on. But it, there's I personally believe there's something important there to kind of uh, to help people. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, having a structure to lean on is really supportive. Um, I come from a, a Orthodox Jewish background, and you know, the ritual—they when somebody dies, you sit shiva, and there's like a whole protocol, and you know how long you do it, and it lasts. You know, like the, the grieving process lasts like a year, and there's like a time frame, and I, I don't necessarily, I didn't necessarily utilize that, but I can appreciate the value of having something that just kind of is already there that you don't have to think about and you don't have to reinvent and hopefully provides like the, the touchstones and the markers throughout the, the grieving process that kind of get you to the next place. You mentioned something uh, interesting uh, about yeah, dreams. So you, <laughs> you actually, uh, that was one of the paths that you took or tools you tried to make use of was your own dreams. And so I know there's a lot of different ways one could look at their dreams, you know, that some people go on the internet and find someone, um, reputable or not, they <laughs> they look. And then other people go to someone maybe more trained, like a Jungian uh, psychologist. So, I mean, in grad school, I had this fabulous professor who was very Jungian, and um, she would always talk about the lives of dreams. And so I was very taken with her way of exploring dreams. And so I sought her out to um, kind of go through a couple of my dreams that I was having, because like I said, my, my dream life was super active and vivid at the time. And I wanted to understand, like, what is this trying to communicate to me? But I've always been fascinated by dreams. And we had another dream interpretation course um, at grad school, which was a different um, approach than the Jungian approach. And actually, this woman was great, the, the Jungian psychologist, she had me actually take these large pieces of paper and draw the different scenes out from my dream and color them in. And so I'd bring them into her office and we'd look at them together and kind of go over the images and the symbols. And that was really helpful. And, you know, I carried, I had those, those pictures of my, my dreams 
for years. Um, so it really kind of grounded grounded in the dream because sometimes you you forget. Like you'll have a really powerful dream, and then unless you do something with it, like write it down or record it or even draw it, you're likely to forget its significance as time goes by. So it felt like really important that I keep a. I also kept a dream journal at the time. I kept a journal, just a general journal, and then I kept a dream journal, and then I kept a journal for signs and synchronicities of uh, my ex-boyfriend in the afterlife, and then I wrote those down. Oh, that's interesting. So just a way to like almost, we had a couple people on talk about the benefits of journaling through grief. And so that's kind of what you're doing too at the same time. So what, do you still remember some of those dreams you had that were really vivid and that you found some meaning in? Yes. I remember one that <laughs> I drew. <laughs> well, the one that I had to draw, I definitely remember. Although I don't know if you want specifically a dream where I, was dreaming about my ex-boyfriend who passed or because the vivid dream didn't have him in it the vivid dream was something separate but i can talk share either one let's do both how about that okay great so the first one that i like really like i colored on these large pieces of paper were sort of me and a friend and the shaman that i was working with and we traveled through this really old, huge, clunky, like 70s computer. So we jumped in it and then we popped out somewhere. And when we popped out, we were on this gorgeous tropical island called Mariposa. And it was like out of the Caribbean and there was like Rastas going by with like shell earrings. And there was a sort of a sequence of like wandering through this island and things would pop up from my childhood like my best friend was there and she was being eaten by sharks and then and then we ended up on a dock with like three live uh, very large cats drinking tea at a table and one of them didn't have a head and so we went through the process of exploring and it i mean it's just at face value what we came to was like this was a big process of transformation i'm going from one sort of old clunky way of being and transforming and popping out into this like tropical paradise which is called you spoke about butterflies mariposa means butterfly in spanish and so i'm going to this island of butterflies and so at the time it was actually a very hopeful and powerful dream that some transformation was happening and it was happening and it was going to end relatively well. And some of the other pieces about the cat without the head and that was an image and we talked about that. And so, so that was that one. Well then what, what did the cat, why was your friend being a shark and the cat? I'm curious about those images. Yeah, well, there was a piece about my best friend from childhood and, and and her personal story of having a very abusive mother, and and you know that was something that I sort of resonated with um, growing up, and so that was sort of like the effects of that were at play in this dynamic. I think without getting too personal about this in in the death and the suicide of my ex-boyfriend. So there was something there for me about this little girl who was being eaten by sharks in childhood. 
And then the cat thing, I'm still not 100% on, but the image, like a cat is a very sensual, feminine creature, and they're very tactile, you know, they're very soft. And so the cat without the head represented being a lot more embodied and not being so much in the head. So it was like a, a movement from the intellect to a more embodied of sensual way of being in the world. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that makes more sense. And I'm curious about the computer because that was really interesting. Kind of just you know glazed over that, but that's that reminds me of that movie Tron, where like they use the computer to get into a different world. So you just and you said 70s computer, so that makes even more sense. Or even Jumanji. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess. So. I- I can't say that I've seen those two movies, but I know what you mean. It was like, oh yeah, watch the Neutron, and then that's like in ten minutes that that scene happens. But uh, huh. yeah, that that was very cool to see. You, you use the computer to kind of did you like did you change shape into like a digital form? I can't remember if I did. Uh, that would be. I, I think it was one of the things that happened so quickly. It wasn't like broken down that I got digitized. But it was I was born in the last year, the 70s. So I think there was something about that, like my birth year being whatever that old, you know, it was all like sepia and brown colored. And so it's like the Wizard of Oz, you made from black and white into color. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's huge. That's a huge significance. There. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so thank, and then, thank you for explaining some of that. Because I, I know we talk about, like grief dreams a lot, like dreams of the deceased. And a lot of the stuff's really self-explanatory in, in a lot of people's eyes. But this dream was so, I wanted you to explain a little bit further just so people can understand how dream symbols work and how they how people can process them differently, especially in the Jungian way. So I think that you gave them enough detail to understand um, how or what to expect if they were to go to a Jungian therapist. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know that every Jungian would have everybody draw out dreams. <laughs> I've never even heard of that, but um, it was a helpful creative process to kind of get the dream from like the ethers and into the world. Yeah. And it, it you know, this, the transformation in that dream is also really helpful to just give me something to work with. Do you All want right. to hear the other dream? Do oh, we have time for that? Do I want to hear the other dream? You know what <laughs> okay. kind of podcast this is? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So this is a different kind. Sometimes, you know, sometimes people want to hear dreams and some people, sometimes people don't want to hear dreams. So I know this is your podcast. <laughs> well, it would be the terrible podcast. <laughs> I know. If we didn't want to hear them. <laughs> I just had to ask. But um, so this dream was more of like a snippet kind of a dream. So I was in this like old fashioned movie theater, like up in the balcony watching a film. And I like bent down and was looking at the floor and I saw, I caught a picture of my, the image of my hand. And then, you know, my former boyfriend's hand. And I just saw our hands and we both had these matching diamond bands on. And um, the diamond band, they were like a band of diamonds that went all around. And I saw his hand and then I saw my hand and I woke up and I was like, wow, I don't, you know, I think I need to go get that ring. Like he's wearing that ring on the other side and I want to have a ring like that. And I didn't even know, I'm not really a person that's 
into diamonds or anything. So I didn't. So I had to look up like what that diamond ring was. So it's a band of rings, and it's called an eternity band. And so the image, like the, just the name eternity, felt um, potent to me. It felt like we were sort of bonded in this very um, romantic way. And so. I started this quest to find this eternity band, like the one from the dream. And so I looked at different jewelry shops and I went to different flea markets. And um, one day I was walking in our town in Mountain View and um, I saw a sale sign at this jewelry store that I hadn't gone into. And so I walked in and I asked them if they had any eternity bands. And they showed me a couple, but they didn't have anything in my size. I wanted it on the of the middle finger but they said they had one in the back and so um when they went to get it they brought it they brought it to me and it was definitely the one from the dream so i started telling them why i was looking for it it was you know valentine's day was approaching and i said i wanted to buy this as a gift to myself um, because my boyfriend had died and the woman who was showing me the ring started telling me how her husband had died a few years ago and um, so she came out and she gave me a hug and then she told me that the owner of the jewelry shop's husband had died you know like 10 years ago and so she was in the back and she brought her out and and that woman gave me a hug and so we all were bonding in this shared you know pretty horrible rare experience of having lost partners and it was very hopeful because they had also found new partners. And so it was just like this beautiful kind of synchronicity that happened as a result of this dream. Um, and so I bought the ring and um, it was just like a very special moment to share with these women in the jewelry store. Wow. So you actually like told them you're buying it because of a dream? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> and that it was a, a gift to myself, you know, because of my ex's death. Wow. And I saw this ring in a dream. And they were like, wow, this ring was must have been for you because we've had it in the back. And um, totally the one that looked like the dream and it fit the finger, my finger perfectly. I think that's remarkable how you opened up about your dream. I commend you for that. And it opened up this beautiful conversation, right? With the other ladies there. And for you to hear about something that it seemed that you needed to hear about, about the hopefulness of being able to find someone, another partner moving forward in life, which can be very scary. I have never lost a partner, but I can understand that, especially if someone died the way your, your boyfriend did. And so are you, have you met someone new this day? You know, I can't say that I have, unfortunately. I've um, I've dated and I've been in relationships, but they, um, you know, I am not currently in one. Is it hard the first time you went on a date and to wear the ring? Well, yes, it was hard to go the first time I went on a date. It took me about three and a half years till I was able to do that, but I didn't. I don't think I wore the ring on the date. And so I don't wear it on my ring finger. I wear it on the middle finger. And um, nobody, you know, I don't wear it all the time, but nobody has asked me what it was about. 
so I never had to explain it. But yes, dating was definitely hard afterwards. Oh, that's so interesting. No one, no one's mentioned it or asked. And you're right. Like I think a tattoo, people ask, you know, because like it's right there. But jewelry, yeah, it's not something that I think is commonly a necklace, maybe. Wow, that is interesting. Do you want people yeah. to ask about it? I do have a tattoo that I got in uh, memory of him. Um, and so when people see the tattoo, I I like people to ask me why or what it's about. Mm. Um, it's not totally visible all the time. But um, yeah, it, it would it would mean a lot if somebody asked me what it was about or why I got it. Yeah, I think it. I think that dream is it's such. It's so beautiful because it's this. What images popped up are obviously significant for you, and to get the clarity of seeing the ring and knowing what it looks like. That's impressive. That's that's interesting. That's obviously significant. That's amazing. And, but, and to hold hands and to feel that and you know what was that feeling like when you woke up? It was a good feeling. It was like. You know, sort of like a startle, like, wow, like, he's got a ring on his hand over on the other side. And it was like, it, it kind of gave me a little, like, motivation, a burst of like, okay, now I want to have a ring and like, whatever that signifies, whether it's like, you know, we're bonded, we're wedded, I don't know, we're connected somehow, like for eternity. Yeah. Like at that time, that, that meant a lot to me, like to, to get that communication. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a beauty there, uh, a beauty in that, um, you know, it, it's, it now becomes a memory. That dream now is a memory of that dream moving forward. And uh, it seems to, seems to be very important in that uh, continuing bond aspect. And it was helpful in my healing process, I would say, because it got me, got me out of the house, it got me moving, it got me, you know. I can imagine um, if, you're, if you're like having a, you know, terrible couple weeks or something and you get a dream like that that can do something to help you shake you out of that that spot that you know we all kind of get into and especially what you get into is, is that deep grief and that deep loss and that those feelings that can be really overwhelming and exhausting but like to get a dream like that i would imagine that you know it'd be refreshing and kind of uplifting to kind of continue forward and then to have the interaction at the jewelry store is incredible <laughs> even more incredible uh, and i'm really i'm really glad i'm really glad that uh, you had that oh thank you thank you yeah it was really sweet and um you know i think for anybody that has, has lost somebody and then you dream about them it's like the most magical sort of gift it's like to get, get another encounter with them just for that you know whatever short time that is it's like so precious and yeah sort of changes you know, whether it's for the day or for the week, it just sort of, you know, you, you don't want to let go of that feeling. Did the dream, when you woke up, did you feel loved or more loved? Yeah. yeah. No, definitely I did. And I felt, yeah, I felt loved and I felt connected and like, oh, you know, he's, he's there. I'm not totally alone. Yeah. And it was helpful. Like I said, I think, you know, grounding these dreams with like objects or drawing them also helps you kind of hold on to them longer. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I uh, I want to also mention you're not the first person I heard of that had a dream of something and found it. So there's another person in when a sample I uh, collected 
And the dream was her fiance died before they could get married. And so in the dream, he presented her with this, basically this ring. And though she went on like you looking for this ring and found it also and bought it for herself. So it's interesting how like there's other people out there that are, that didn't get a chance to have that object. And yet it's presented in a dream and it, it exists somewhere in the world, which I think is so fascinating. Yeah, no, definitely. I think there is some fluidity between the dream world and this world. And um, and you can tap into that. It's yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah, I think yeah. I feel like there's a lot of missed opportunities and just generally in regular society and, and not maybe take take it for dreams for granted. And I feel like in general there's there's a missed opportunity there to, to really get in, gain some interesting information that we can't really I guess process normally during the waking life or just doesn't come to us or you know, it's a different way of kind of evaluating or looking at a situation, which is beautiful. Yeah, totally. And also during that time, um, here's another little dream snippet. Like I said, I think I had access to like the, the clues and the gifts of these dreams because I was really working with them and I was writing down my dreams. Um, and if maybe I wasn't, then like they might have just flitted by and I woke up and I couldn't remember it and then I didn't get the ring or I didn't you know, have those moments. But I, three months after my former boyfriend died, I had this tiny dream of this cat, this gray tabby cat sleeping on my bed. And when I woke up in the morning, I said to myself, wow, that's my cat. I've got to go find him. And I didn't have a cat at that time. And so I went, went around the Bay Area cat shelters, and animal shelters, and I was looking for the cat in the dream. And I kept thinking it was a male cat and I couldn't find the right gray tabby male. And then finally, I went to the last shelter in Redwood City, and they showed me the only gray tabby they had, which was a female. And it was immediately like a recognition, and she was the one from my dream. And she stuck her paw out at me, and, um, you know, we've been together ever since. And she's been such a source of support, especially during those early months of grief. Um, So that was an interesting kind of vision that happened in a dream that I followed up on as well. And I'm so thankful that I did because I can't imagine having gone through all of that without having, you know, a cat or a pet. Wow. So the ring wasn't the first time you did it. That's wild. (laughs) I think that's so cool how you're able to follow it through. She literally follows her dreams. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I follow my dreams. There's a quote that Um, I always see on like journal books that says, uh, follow your dreams they know the way and so it's actually kind of funny how you actually literally follow your dreams and you never know right like but it's interesting to look back and see like how amazing the the cat was for your grief because we've talked to people on here they say it's such a such a comfort and especially when you're feeling alone as you're saying it, it gives you that reduce the loneliness in a way that it's not replacing individual but it's like something new and it's not like a boyfriend or another, you know, another partner. It's it's a sentient being that is there with you and you're caring for it as it cares for you. And it does something, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the, that unconditional love, you know, the conditional love is kind of like, all right, you put an effort into here. And there's always these contract, social contracts, whatnot. But yeah, an animal, a pet, I have a, I have a dog and he's right beside us. 
but it's that unconditional love of of that uh, that relationship that's beautiful you know you come home and and there they are and you know they're ready to be greeted and, and to cuddle and to whatever happens and they accept you for who you are which in society doesn't really happen too often sometimes but <laughs> but uh yeah, yeah. It, i i know that feeling but uh it, it's 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 something very special and i'm really happy that you've experienced that with with your cat what's her name her name is hazel oh wonderful that's the name that she came with at the shelter and she's sitting here right now too she's like a i think she was heaven sent to me i i don't know there's something very mystical about that part of the dream um or her showing up in a dream and then me finding her um she's like a healer cat and so i feel like somebody or some you know this is part of my spiritual meaning making like somebody was throwing me a little bit of a bone by putting me and, and Hazel together so that she could be there for me. So, yeah, I'm super glad I followed up on that. Was it actually, just a follow-up question, was it difficult to get the cat and in terms of knowing that, hey, here's another potential loss that I have to experience because the cat will die before me? Most likely. No, I didn't have that thought with her. I think about that now more now that she's older. And that's definitely a thought that I have when I'm starting a new relationship with somebody. Because I think it's just part of PTSD. Yeah. Um, like, do I really want to go here with a new person? Because they could probably die before me. Um, and so, like, I would, wouldn't want to have to go through that whole experience all over again. Is uh, um, Hazel Hazel your first pet? Yes, my first pet as a as a grown independent person. Yeah, <laughs> good for you. Uh, good for you. I think that's great. I think uh, uh, me as well. I I got my dog at thirty one. I guess at thirty one, and uh, you know I never had one before. So I think that's that's cur- courageous to go out there and say, especially after a dream, <laughs> to say, you know what, I need a cat. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I like to live, you know, adventurously and follow follow the call as best as I can. All right. And one of our last questions we like to ask on the podcast is if you could have a dream tonight, what would that dream look like to you? I could have any dream tonight. Yes, wow. anything. Um, I think I would like a dream you can go back what, into the computer if you want to. <laughs> no, I don't think I want to. I'm, I'm going to keep going towards the beach, not the computer. Um, I would like a dream sort of a guidance about what my next steps in life are. It feels like I'm kind of at a transition and something unknown is before me. Um, so a dream about like what's, what's coming or what, what steps am I take, supposed to be taking? What about you guys? <laughs> well hold on hold on i want to ask some follow-up questions to yours <laughs> okay yeah th- then we'll get you know we've never been asked that but we will yeah. definitely answer that after yeah. so would you want him to be wearing the ring also the, from the other dream oh um i don't see him in i'm not needing him to be in my dreams at the moment. I mean, if I see him again in a dream, that would, that would be lovely. But I'm not asking for that. Because, like, you know, I've gone through the grief and I've had to, you know, fall out of love with him and put, you know, accept that he's gone and that he and I are no longer 
um, together or going to be together. So it's, I don't feel like that romantic desire to see a ring or anything with him. You just want to have a conversation about what he sees in your life and where you're going. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Like what I, I see him as a guide. So yeah. Like what's what's the guidance for these, this open, unknown future mm. of mine? It's pretty cool. All right, Sean. <laughs> I'm excited. What kind of dream do you want? I I would like to dream of my grandfather and grand, grandmother and they died grandfather a couple years ago grandmother last year and I just never I haven't had a grief dream of them so I would like to have one of either of them or both of them to kind of pop up and maybe just a you know living room maybe maybe in our living room when the Christmas tree is still up and maybe just have a chat or something or or something crazy maybe like yeah, I could do like a beach. That'd be nice. Beach, forest, stream, something serene. Maybe running water or, or ocean nearby. But yeah, I would like to have one of them. Hmm. Cool. And uh, I think uh, I think you're on the right track, Sarah. I think guidance would be a good one. But for me, I think guidance along with just sitting in, in their company would be great. What about you? <laughs> well, Sean... <laughs> I've been watching The Witcher lately. I don't know if <laughs> you guys seen this, um, but Mm-mm. no, okay. It's kind of like uh, uh, Game of Thrones, a lot of castles and stuff. And I always been a fan of Scotland because my dad was so highly into his Scottish heritage, and so I always watch Braveheart and stuff. So the dream I would want on my father would be to visit Scotland. And to really just walk around some of the castles there and just really chat and to really be in the moment. I don't know if I want anything said per se, but just sort of like just just do that together. Because I think it's one thing that I would have loved to do that I never got a chance to do. So I think that would probably be really cool. And if the Witcher walked by, that would just make it even more <laughs> badass. <laughs> we got to bleep that out. Hold <laughs> on. Even even great because then we can both sort of just chuckle at, at the uh, the scenery there, but yeah, it's interesting. I uh, just want to talk about even my own loss. I actually had a lot of emotions come up. Um, it was the eleventh year that my father wasn't around, and it's interesting because in school, when Christmas came around, there wasn't a lot of emotions. But for this being the first year, finish the the PhD, uh, even like or even the masters to finish that, these emotions were coming up that didn't come up prior and I, th- and I sort of sat and reflected on that a little bit and I think as much as school was great it also was a hindrance for emotions to come up because there's so much work to be to do to finish that goal or achieve that that meaning making and so it was nice to have those emotions comes up and I was sitting with my grandma my aunt at the time and so I got to thank them for the roles they've played in my life and in his life so I just wanted to mention that in the sense that we just uh, passed over the holidays there and it it's been 11 years and it, you know these things come up and it's nice reflecting on why now so anyways that's uh that's a dream i would want so, sounds cool kind of haunted a little bit yeah i'm picturing it at night for some reason oh wow yeah, nighttime, nighttime dream with some uh the scottish moors the with hills, the uh those things the they hold those wood things yeah. with the fire yeah 
I, I, and I'm picturing you guys. I don't know why I'm picturing <laughs> this. You guys have like maybe some coffee. You guys are holding some or tea. And they something. don't drink tea. They drink beer <laughs> in Scotland. Come on, <laughs> they huh? drink scotch. <laughs> All right, you guys have a glass of scotch and you're going for a stroll amongst the castles. I like it. Yeah, like old time scenery. Cows walking around. You know, it'd be good. <laughs> Well, I hope you both have those dreams tonight, and I hope I have my dream tonight. <laughs> Fingers crossed, right? Fingers crossed. Yes. <laughs> and so before we wrap up, I want you to talk a little bit about your book that you wrote and sort of where people can find it, but also what's maybe different about this book than maybe some other books that they've, they've heard and, you know, um, what they could maybe yeah. get from it and also maybe who would be most suitable for that book. Okay, so um, my book is called Love You Like the Sky, Surviving the Suicide of a Beloved. And um, it's written for any survivor of the suicide. So if you've had a boyfriend or a husband or a wife or a girlfriend who has died from suicide and you're sort of just completely distraught and don't know how to get through, it's a really dark experience. Um, this book is basically meant to be as a companion um, as well as offering practical guidance and tools and ways to help you work through the different stages of the book so i lay out three different stages that i went through which were despair shifting and then beauty and the book is pretty personal it's really raw i wrote um my former boyfriend emails after he died and so this is a compilation of those emails it's sort of going through the story of what happened and my grief process and then um i know how i was getting myself through it and and then i have um sections where i'm writing more as a psychologist and the older sort of narrator um, who can offer the reader tools. Um, but since the book has come out, people who have experienced all kinds of loss have shared with me that it's really helped them. So it's not really just for anybody surviving a suicide. It could be, you know, it could be for a child that died or a parent that died or any kind of grief or even people who are, especially millennials, who are struggling with their own depression or suicidality. Because um, I talk up a lot about that in the book, how I was suicidal and how I got through it. Um, so yeah, and it can be found on Amazon, just uh, or any other online booksellers or my website. But um, mostly people buy it through Amazon. Perfect. And that title is again. Love you like the sky, surviving the suicide of a beloved. Why the why the uh, loving you like the sky? What is that? Love you like the sky. Yeah. So I just absolutely adored his blue eyes. Like he had the most beautiful, huge blue eyes. And whenever I'd look at his eyes, and like we were outside, like the sky and his eyes sort of blended. And it's just for me a poetic way of um, referencing him, and you know the haunting of you know something I think pretty mystical and ineffable about like the sky it's like some somewhere you can never get to and it's like you think it's right in front of you and then you can't touch it so it sort of was a metaphor for uh, my feelings towards him and how, how it felt to be longing for him some somewhere that i didn't know where he was in death and couldn't ever feel like i was ever going to reach him 
Wow, a lot of thought went into that. I like that. No, it's 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 really nice. And was his eyes blue? It's super blue. Yeah, he okay. had like sky blue eyes. Yeah. Well, it could have been like a dark, really dark brown. And it's what like, kind of sky <laughs> is brown? <laughs> well, when you, if you go out at night and you're looking up, as in my dream, you look up, it's just the sky's black. <laughs> okay, it's blue, Sean. We got it. Got it. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Sarah. Um, it's been a pleasure. And thank you for taking the time out to do this. And thank you for taking uh, the time to talk about some uh, topics that aren't always easy. But, you know, you showed a lot of courage and uh, you did it. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was fun. I enjoyed the uh, the laughter and the, and the comments and learning a lot about your story and your journey and things I wouldn't have thought about. And even how you process your dreams was, you know, for me, um, some good takeaways as I move forward uh, in this life too. So, you know, thank you again for coming on. Appreciate it. I'm glad we uh, were able to connect. And uh, please let us know if you do get any more dreams of him uh, moving forward. Okay, guys, I'll keep you posted. And thanks again. Absolutely. And you can check out our book on Amazon uh, again. So check that out. Um, so you can please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. We added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. Uh, if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Very supportive group. So definitely check it out. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. Um, and check out our other podcast. Yes, we have another one. And it is... <laughs> Say what? It's uh, called Grief Cafe. And it is a place that we talk about kind of a generally we talk about grief uh, topics uh, that, that pop up throughout in the world, in the news. And like, for instance, like, you know, the Amazon fires that happened or mass shootings, mass killings. And it's us, it's, it's me, it's Joshua, and it's our good friend Darwin Dave. So check that out. Uh, we have a website, griefcafe.com, and an email address, griefcafepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, so as always, we like to end our podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.